I wonder how many of you have uh, seen or uh, read or uh, heard of the book The Power of Positive Thinking by Methodist Minister Norman Vincent Peale. Uh, it was released in 1952, some 70 years ago. Uh, and it's uh, an extremely popular book. It's a book uh, where you're uh, essentially told that um, you need to picture yourself succeeding, you need to think positive uh, and you need to uh, be true to yourself and uh, it also has some good advice like uh, you need to repeat out of context Bible verses to yourself ten times a day. So. Uh, if, if God is for us, who can be against us? Ten times a day. And uh, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Repeat that to yourself ten times a day. As it happens uh, this week on Instagram, uh, a minister who I follow posted this picture of a mug someone had given him, uh, which said, um, I can do all things through an out-of-context Bible verse. Um, I thought, I wouldn't mind that one. Um, so, uh, and on and on the book went uh, about how, how to gear your mind to positive thinking and therefore success in life. And some of you here may have found it helpful in parts, and I'm sure it is helpful uh, in parts for some. But, whilst the book is extremely popular and, and has, a, has left a long legacy, it's not without its critics. And ironically, the critics come from both the fields of mental health and psychology and theology which are the two areas which the book claims to be uh, helping you to live uh, your positive life. Uh, and as they, they bring their critiques, some of which I've already touched on, and this is not a sermon on the, the, the power of positive thinking by Norman Peale, but there are critiques out there. But what, what I think we see with those critiques is that uh, there, there may be something more required for a, a successful life, a good life, than just thinking positively. And in fact, uh, rather than positive thinking for victory and success, I actually think what we see in the three stories today is a different way of thinking that leads to success, humble thinking, humbling yourself. That this may actually be the uh, upside-down Kingdom of God way to a successful life. Let's see if you agree with me as we work our way through uh, the reading that Kerry read for us today. It comes in three parts, a parable uh, that uh, Em uh, has already touched on a bit with the kids, a story about kids uh, and then a story of a rich guy who uh, comes up to Jesus. And each story teaches us a little something different about the, the nature of uh, the kind of humility Jesus calls us to have. So, let's start verses 9 to 14 of chapter 18, the parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee. It's told who, there's a particular audience in mind, to some who were confident in their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else. Jesus tells the parable to these people uh, and He says uh, to them, hey, let me tell you a story. There are these two blokes, a Pharisee, you know, an upstanding religious person and a tax collector, the scum of the earth. 
And these two guys know that that is how society views them and that has shaped their prayers. So the Pharisee, verses 11 and 12, prays a proud prayer. God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. How good is that? And the tax collector, meanwhile, he's over in the corner somewhere, can't even look, at, look up to heaven towards God, and he beats his breast and he simply says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And the end result, rather surprisingly, especially to the intended audience of people who were confident in their own righteousness, precisely because they probably thought, well, I'm not a tax collector, I don't rob people, I'm not an evildoer, I don't do adultery, I fast and I give a tenth of all I have. The end result, though, Jesus says, is in fact the tax collector, the one who cowers in the corner, barely looking, uh, uh, unable to look up. He goes home justified, verse, eight, uh, verse 14, for all those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. And what we see here as we think about humility and God is that as we, uh, wanna, if we want to get our thinking right... Uh, if we want to uh, be people of the kingdom, as we've seen, there's a lot going on about the kingdom of God in these, uh, these chapters, then the starting point uh, of humility, the starting point of entry into the kingdom, is an acknowledgement of our sin. We have to start there. Until you are ready to admit that you too without God's mercy, can simply say nothing but, please, God, have mercy on me. That you bring nothing that ought to curry God's favour and are instead totally and utterly reliant on the mercy of God. Then you'll never get humility right. The starting point is an acknowledgement that no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, sin is your greatest problem it's the great leveller and it's the thing we all need help with. So we start there, acknowledging our sin before God. And once we do that, then we need to keep on being dependent on God, which is where the next story comes in, Luke 18 verses 15 to 17. People are bringing children to Jesus and the disciples don't like it. They're like, no, 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 stop stop. 2,000 years ago, children were to be seen and not heard. Uh, and, and, and so, you can see the disciples thinking, this is Jesus, the Messiah. He's got better things to do than bless children. He could teach us something. But Jesus rebukes them and in doing so, teaches them and us that the Kingdom of God is for everyone, regardless of status, regardless of how society views them, and in fact that the least in society, like kids in Jesus' day, actually teach us what it requires to be a disciple. And in fact, there's something particular about children. Jesus says in verse 17, Truly I tell you, anyone who will not receive the Kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. 
What does that mean? Well, uh, as a father, I know that the trust uh, and the reliance that young children have on their kids, uh, on their parents. And this kind of trust and reliance is the same trust and reliance that Jesus is calling you and me to and that his disciples to uh, when it comes to their heavenly Father. See, humility starts with first acknowledging you bring nothing to the table, that you're a sinner in need of mercy. Then the next step is to realise essentially that's the situation upon in, in which you remain. You need to continually, humbly come before God like a child before their father, uh, asking for His mercy and grace and support and strength. It's very humbling being four, let me tell you. Uh, uh, poor old Amity, you know, I've, I've got to uh, help her to the toilet. Good thing she's not 10 yet uh, and can't critique me for mentioning her in, my, in, in the sermon. But I, I, I've got to open um, the simplest of, of packets. Uh, obviously, I try and teach her to have a little bit of self, uh, of uh, uh, be able to do these things herself. But, but she comes with no shame. She doesn't mind sitting on the toilet, for example. I'm sorry that you're getting stories about my uh, home life and how it works in the toilet, but she doesn't mind sitting there with the door open, having a chat about uh, how the whole toileting things works while I help her sort it out. It's this kind of pure, uh, 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 total, humble self-reliance uh, uh, on, on me and on her mother uh, and a total, 100% complete trust in us. And that sort of attitude is the kind of uh, attitude we need to have before God. Uh, and I think especially that, that, that lack of shame, uh, the lack of shame, because if you start where that first story teaches to start, God have mercy on me, a sinner then as you continue to, to, to relate to God, uh, it can be, as we go on, we can get proud and try and hide, think we can hide things from God, but no, instead he says, come without shame, humble yourself and allow me, your Father who loves you, to help. We admit our sin and we continue to humble ourselves to continually rely on our Father. And then we move to the final part of our reading, a story about someone who could be quite self-reliant as a rich, uh, a rich man encountering Jesus. And uh, we learn something else about this ongoing, humble life that we need to live as God's people. So, verses, uh, um, verse 18 through 30... Here we have a man who comes to Jesus uh, wanting to justify himself, much like the, the, the opening story of the, the Pharisee who, who prays that proud prayer. We have another proud man. This ruler, this rich ruler, he comes to Jesus in verse 18 and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And of course, 
uh, it, it seems obvious from the way the interaction goes that the, the, the ruler thinks he the ruler thinks he knows what the answer is and he thinks he succeeds at the answer. And so Jesus gives him the answer that he, he wants to hear, I suspect. Jesus says, you know the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, testimony honour your father and mother. And the rich man boldly proclaims, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Like, I reckon that'd be a pretty bold claim. I've, been, I've done this well for five years. Uh, that, that, that would be a bold claim. But this guy's like, no, no, since, since I was five, I'm all good. Never been told off since. Totally, perfectly kept the commandments. I am all good. And of course, Jesus detects the arrogance and the pride and knows his heart and so cuts to the heart and says, verse 22, when Jesus heard this, he said to him, you still lack one thing, sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven, then come and follow me. And the rich man's response, verse 23, he heard this and became very sad because he was very wealthy. Jesus says, you need to be sold out to me, to, to the Father. And you need to have nothing else rule your life other than me. This is the last sort of step of humility to continually search the recesses of your heart. We uh, get a story of, of a tax collector that we'll look at next week, famous story of Zacchaeus. You'll know it because he's short and he climbs a tree. But Zacchaeus encounters Jesus and has a money problem and he has a completely different response to this guy. This guy gets told, uh, encounters Jesus and gets told money's an issue for him and walks away because he's very wealthy and he doesn't want to give it up. Why is he sad? He's sad because Jesus has exposed where his heart is truly at. Up to this point, when he's made it about external rule-keeping, he's been able to have a heart that loves money and an outward appearance that looks like he's doing all the things that one should do to be a good religious person. But his heart was wrong. And there is something that can be particularly dangerous about money, isn't there? Though I think uh, the, the point is more that there was something else other than God that ruled this man's heart. But nonetheless, wealth and the false sense of security that comes with it can actually prevent us from having the kind of humble dependence on God that he requires. For wealth not only can make us become self-reliant, but it also can do the opposite of uh, humility, can create the opposite effect of humility, it can create pride. It can be easy to sit back and look at your bank account and your home 
and the things that you've achieved and the, and the things that you've purchased and think to yourself, look what I've done, look what I've achieved, look what, what I can do. Wealth can make us self-focused instead of others-focused. And in a, in a uh, Western uh, world driven by consumerism, it's easy to think that working hard and earning money is what matters most in life. Uh, it certainly can win us great praise from the world around us. Look at him, hasn't he done well for himself? Until jealousy kicks in and then we start to uh, cut each other down. But more than money, more than uh, earning enough uh, for yourself, more than, uh, and than taking pride in what you've achieved... What matters more than all of that is humbling yourself, laying your life down and following Jesus. And this can be shocking, and it was shocking to the disciples. As, as Jesus uh, uh, says to this rich man, you need to sell everything you've got because wealth has taken number one spot in your heart. The disciples are shocked. The disciples would have thought that this rich Jew who was an expert in rule-keeping, having done nothing wrong according to the Ten Commandments since he was five, that this guy would have definitely been one who was going to get straight into heaven. So the disciples are shocked. How, if, if this man isn't in, then how can anyone be in? Verse 26, who then can be saved? And of course, the answer, Jesus says, in verse 27, is what is impossible with man is possible with God. The answer is, anyone can be saved. Absolutely anyone. Because we're not saved by law-keeping or tithe-giving or be, by, be better than others or more holy than others. We're saved through the grace of God. And so we need to humble ourselves, run after our Father and continue to work on our hearts to constantly put to death whatever else in this life might cause us to choose it rather than Jesus might cause us to choose self rather than God. And the disciples, they've done that. They say, verse 28, we have left all we have to follow you. We've given up everything for you. And Jesus says, reward comes to those who humble themselves and put Christ first, verses 29 and 30. Truly I tell you, no one who has left home or wife or brother or sister or parent or child for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come eternal life. It's, it can sometimes feel hard to know what Jesus is talking about when he, when he talks about all those things that people might have to leave for the sake of following him when we've lived uh, in a fairly comfortable part of the world. But for many of our brothers and sisters in the majority world, they would take great comfort in, the, in, the, in verses 29 and 30 of chapter 18. 
there is story after story after story of people who realise that they are at the mercy of God, that they uh, uh, need his salvation and that that comes through Jesus. And they put everything on the line. They humble themselves completely. And their Muslim family, their Hindu family, their secular atheist family, disown them. Kick them out of home. Say, if you want to go down that path, you are as good as dead to us. Forget your inheritance. Forget a safe place to come back to. This is a shame to our family and a waste of your life. If you're going to do this, we'd rather you die. No one who has left home or wife or brother or sister, parent or child for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much as in this age and in the age to come, eternal life. People get disowned by people they love all the time for following Jesus. I wonder if you would still be here this morning if it meant you would never see your children again. If it meant you'd go home and your wife or your husband just simply wasn't there anymore. Your parents, grandchildren, they were like, you keep going to church and, get, and, and, and doing that Jesus thing, I don't want to see you anymore. Would you still be here? Because Jesus says, you need to be willing to give up everything. For the rich man, it was his money. For you, who knows what it might be. But it's all on the line when we humble ourselves and follow Jesus. The big problem is that he's not so much money or family, but our hearts and what our number one thing in our hearts is. And if you can't even imagine the possibility, and let's hope it never happens to anyone here, that, that one day your faith might tear your family apart, it's an invitation to do some work on your heart. And the Bible teaches us that this is important work to do. For the heart, we read in Jeremiah 17, 9, is deceitful above all things. Or as John Calvin puts it in one of his commentaries on Acts, the human heart is a factory of idols. Every one of us is, from his mother's womb, expert in inventing idols. That is, our hearts constantly create things other than God to love. For the rich man, it's wealth. For us, it might be appearance or family, what others think of us, having success, feeling in control, uh, making sure our political party wins. I don't know what it is. But Tim Keller gives a great uh, little sentence for helping you 
do the hard work of the heart uh, as you continue to humble yourself before God. He says, take some time prayerfully and try and answer this question honestly. Life only has meaning if. Life only has meaning if. Or I only have worth if. Life only has meaning if my daughters love me. I only have worth if I'm successful at work. Uh, Life only has meaning if I can see my grandkids. Life only has worth if the Liberal Party is in government. Like, I don't know what it might be. But, But that question helps you see what it might be that Jesus tells you to leave behind as you follow him. So, remember this, life is meaningful, not because of any of those other things, but because of the gospel, because of Jesus. And our lives, as we start first admitting that we are sinners in need of God's mercy, we then continue to humble ourselves before God, to rely on Him, to help us, to protect us, to provide for us, and to, and to ask for His wisdom as we seek to deal with our heart idols and put Jesus first above all else. If we can do that, then there's eternal reward. So let's trust God and His mercy as we seek to live a humble life before Him. Amen.